Revelation chapter 9, beginning in verse 20. Revelation chapter 9, beginning in verse 20. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornications, nor of their thefts. In your outline, you should see Confession of Faith 25.6. As it was originally written, There is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ. Nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but as that Antichrist, that man of sin, the son of perdition that exalteth himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. The new uh, American amended version stops with the semicolon, with the word thereof. The doctrine, as it is expressed here, uh, to you will seem very strange. And the fact that this would seem strange to any Protestants is, is almost a historical marvel. Once upon a time, uh, all Protestants believed this. When the Westminster Confession of Faith was, was written, this was no strange, novel, or unusual doctrine, but rather the common profession of their faith. Now, almost no one believes this. And uh, the Presbyterians ended up being so embarrassed by by it that they expunged it from their confession. But we must think about this. If this old doctrine is true, But we choose to ignore it. We are ignoring what is described by the scriptures as our greatest earthly enemy and a profound danger. This seems to be folly. It might not be politically correct to say such a thing, but as we mentioned earlier in the prayer, we are not to be ignorant of the devil's devices. And if this is one of the principal ways that he has injured the church of God historically, we need to be alert. My intention this morning is not a a full defense of this doctrine. If you want that, I've done that in times past, not too long ago, maybe a couple of years, I I preached a sermon series called Many Antichrists in in five sermons. If you want the the fuller picture, uh, you'll want to go there. 
Uh, this morning, though, we do have occasion to take up just one facet of this much larger controversy. And the single facet has to do with the exposition of verse 20 and how we're to understand it. Uh, namely, when it says that, um, uh, that they would not repent of the worshiping of devils. So uh, if you think about our exposition up to this present point, throughout I have been saying that um, uh, anti-Christianism has been spreading west and east. We have not yet occasion to, uh, to observe its principal development in the papacy, but we have seen it developing by degrees. And remember, um, Contemporary dispensationalism has almost ruined the word antichrist. We're almost embarrassed to say it anymore. Uh, they, have, uh, they have made it a cartoon character or something like that, and so reform people want to shy away from the idea. But the idea is an important one, a profound one. I'm un- myself unwilling to give up the word, but would have it rehabilit- rehabilitated. It doesn't mean in its first instance against Christ. It means a replacement Christ an intruding mediator, anything that would dare to usurp his place. That's its primary definition in the Greek. And of course, largely considered conceptually, that is against Christ, to rob him of his place is uh, to come against him. And that's true. But its first mention is, uh, its first instance is replacing him. And so we saw it done in the sacrament of baptism as the sacraments are becoming viewed as conferring grace in and of themselves. Jesus recedes into the background. We no longer need a sovereign Christ applying grace to us through the Holy Spirit. We've got the water. And the water will sanctify us and communicate grace. The priest stands between the people and God because he's the one that administers the sacraments. The church that authorizes him also, a replacement Christ, that would, the idea will have its full flowering in the, in the papacy. And the papacy, Pope has unashamedly taken to himself the title. What do you think vicar of Christ means? It's a Latin translation, a Latinized version of antichristos in the Greek. But it's the full flowering. He would put himself in the place of Christ in, uh, in distributing... Um, grace, but also in distributing censures and so on. As we've seen, as this uh, anti-Christianism is growing throughout the nominally Christian world, the Lord is pouring out his anger. He wears out the Western Roman Empire and church through the barbarian invasions. He wears out the Eastern Roman Empire and church through um, the Muslim wars. And uh, here in our text, we have the West looking on at the East and not taking the lesson. Just this week as we have been praying and meditating about these things, the the response of the West in that ancient time towards the Muslim invasion of the East is almost the same as it is now. They sent troops, but they would not repent of the sins that were occasioning all of this. And so we look to the same things. Let's flood the region with troops and yet we will, we will continue in the same idolatry that has brought this plague upon humanity. A very striking fact. Now, one of the objections that has been brought against this exposition comes in verse 20. 
And they will say that this cannot be Western Christendom. This cannot be the Roman church because they don't worship devils. They don't, and it's not fair to say that they do, and uh, so on. We have some hard work to do this morning, but I think that we'll we'll see that what at first seemed to be an objection uh, is really just more uh, proof that our exposition is on the right track. And this is a very striking and startling prophecy concerning Roman practice. Uh, And not just uh, beginning in the 4th century, but Roman practice even to the present day. They still have not uh, repented of this idolatry. So in your outline, you'll see something called a lexicological analysis. What is that? Lexicology is just a a fancy word for uh, defining words. What, do, what does a word mean and how do we know? How can we, how can we prove it? Lexicography is the science of making dictionaries. And so scholars like to talk about their lexicon, which, which is just egghead for dictionary. You know, we've, we've made our uh, dictionaries. And we have a couple of words that require some study and some focus here. Now, in your outline there, I have provided Revelation 9.20, and uh, the Greek expression, that they should not worship devils, tai daimonia. And that language of daimonion, you know. It's where we have our English word demon, right? But it's very interesting that, um, first of all, why did the King James translators decide to translate this devils rather than demons? I think if you know something about the history of even the English word demon, I think that that might have been a little better. Uh, It would have left uh, greater interpretive power in the English reader, I think. If he knows a little something about the the ancient usage of this word. They chose devils, uh, obviously uh, indicating here that they thought that this had to do with uh, the worshiping of evil spirits, fallen angels, Satan's minions. That sort of idea. But interestingly enough, devil in Greek is a very different word. Devil in, in Greek is diabolos. And its usage is really not very flexible. Basically what it means is one that is prone to slander or one that uh, is inclined to false accusations. Sometimes this can be, can be used if men... Um, on a handful of occasions in the New Testament, it, it is. There's at least three, maybe four. Three times it comes to us in the plural without the article. So not the slanderers, but just slanderers. And you should see this in First Timothy 3.11. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers. May is not diabolus, plural for slanderers, but no article. So not the slanderers, but just not slanderers, you see. There's, you get that on three very similar usages in the pastoral epistles. One time, uh, it raises interesting questions. You remember it at the end of John chapter 6, uh, Jesus says, have I not chosen all of you, but one of you, namely Judas, not identified at that point, is a devil. No article. So, is Jesus just saying he's a he's a false accuser, which he ended up being, or is Jesus saying that um, he has become one of Satan's minions in a sense? Hard to say, uh, just given what we are there. 
But um, I, I'm prone to take it in its most basic sense uh, because it makes perfect sense and tolerable sense in the context that in all four of these examples, it just means those that are prone to slander uh, as Judas ended up being. Now, on more than 30 occasions in the New Testament, it appears in the singular with the article. And it always means the great accuser, the accuser of the brethren, the devil, Satan. This is this little bit of lexical work. You'll probably never be able to remember it till we get to Revelation chapter 12, but it becomes very useful there uh, again as well. If you look in your outline, Revelation 12, uh, verses 9 and 10, and the great dragon was cast out that old serpent called the devil and Satan. So that first character that looks like an O, ha, that's the article. That next word is um, passive participle called, the one called diabolos, kai, that is and, satanos, Satan, right? Very plain. And then they go on and the, the ongoing description is, is very useful, very helpful, very clarifying which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So when he was ejected, he wasn't ejected alone, but there are uh, lesser demons that seem that are under his sway and power. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ for the accuser, notice there, the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. So here, first we got the word for accusation, diabolos, one who accuses. And then with actually different vocabulary, it's made clear to us that that's exactly what's in view in giving him this title, that he is an accuser of the brethren. A courtroom scene is painted for us by the fullness of the scripture. And in um, Hebrew, Hasatan, the Satan, is portrayed as being the prosecuting attorney. He is the accuser of the brethren. But Jesus is then portrayed to us as the paraclete. That is the defense attorney the one who comes alongside and he defends his people from their accusations. We get a very lively representation of this in Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. But before we go to that, I want you to notice here that uh, juxtaposed in Revelation twelve nine is he's called the devil and Satan, the devil being the proper Greek word, Satan being the proper Hebrew word, but they mean pretty much the same thing. Satan in Hebrew means a little bit more generally adversary, but put in the judicial context, he is the accusing adversary. And so these things are, are put rightly side by side. And we see the, the courtroom scene in Zechariah chapter 3, uh, verses 1 and 2. And um, for those of you that don't do any Hebrew or Greek or whatever, I'm doing my best to explain it. I've included some of this because we now have people in our midst that are interested in the study of both. So just set that in front of them. And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to resist. So and Satan, Hasatan in, uh, in Hebrew, Ha Diabolos 
in the Greek translation, the Septuagint. Okay, so say, uh, basically, fourth-century Jews living in Alexandria, Egypt, who knew Greek very well, read Satan, and they thought the best Greek translation is Diabolos, the prosecuting attorney, the accuser. And interestingly enough, in Hebrew, I've given you the whole phrase because it said that uh, Satan, Omade, stands uh, at the right hand to Satan, or in order to Satan. Now it becomes a verb. And so what is he doing there? But here, if he's an adversary, you would say he resists. He stands at the right hand to resist. If he's an accuser, he stands at the right hand to accuse, but basically to do the work of the Satan. The, uh, the accuser, the prosecuting uh, attorney. And the Lord said unto Satan, same translation, the Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, same translation. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? And so Joshua is being accused, the high priest. The prosecuting attorney shows up to make the accusation. His garments are filthy. And then the defense attorney, the Lord Jesus Christ, shows up, gives him the robe of righteousness, and vindicates him in the face of his uh, enemy. So interestingly enough, the Hebrew and the Greek are almost identical. In uh, these instances in Zechariah, 14 times in the first two chapters of Job, you get Satan, but always with the article. He's not just an adversary. He is the adversary, the great one. And so you have a a similar thing in Greek. It's not just uh, an accuser. You don't get an article with that, but rather the great uh, accuser. And as a matter of fact, there's no uh, really clear exception to this rule in the Hebrew Bible. There's some possible instances, but no real clear definitive instance that um, the great Satan is in view when the article is, is missing. Other accusers might very well be involved. So just to try to gather all of this up, I know that this is uh, hard work, but there are some very important conclusions to be derived. Remember, I always tell you, some things can't always be had in the easiest way. Some things are up on the high shelf, and you're going to have to climb to get them. So it is here. Um, So there's no article in the Greek or the Hebrew when it's referring to men accusing. In the singular with the article, both in Hebrew and Greek, it's always the great accuser. And there's no really clear uh, exceptions to that. Possible ones, but no clear ones. And interestingly enough, fallen angels are never called diaboloi in the scriptures, in the New Testament. Uh, Some of you will know the name Adam Clark. He's a very famous biblical interpreter, also a great antiquarian. He said, devil is never in the scripture used in the plural. He's referring to diabolos there is but one devil there are many demons but what he's saying is that that's a different uh, that's a different lexicology there you got a different lexeme in view there if you want to refer to that interesting interesting so we come to daimonion which refers properly to demon. And daimonia, in the plural, is often used in the New Testament of the devil's fallen angels, evil spirits. We're well acquainted with this because as as we go through the Gospels again in our public reading, we frequently find Jesus encountering demons. This lexeme is in view. 
and they are clearly uh, fallen angels subordinate to the great uh, Satan. And this becomes so common in the Gospels, interestingly enough, that it becomes our primary definition of the word demon in English. Now, I want, this prejudices the discussion, but I, so I want you to get this. And if you don't understand this, you'll never understand what I'm saying. The primary definition of the word demon in English right now is evil spirit, satanic power, right? Um, but even in the time of the New Testament, that was not its primary usage. Its primary usage was to imaginary heathen gods. So the demons were the imaginary heathen gods that were worshipped uh, by the Gentile nations. That's the way that the Gentiles used it. That's the way that the Jews used it about the Gentiles, their imaginary gods that they, that they worship. And interestingly enough, you, this is not hard to prove. If you, if you flip open the, the classical Greek dictionary published by Oxford, uh, evil spirit you know, comes at the very end of the list, right at the very beginning, has to do with the things of heathen false gods. So in classical antiquity, and remember, this is the context in which uh, the Greek of the Septuagint was written in the 4th century BC. And then classical antiquity and the Septuagint end up having a heavy linguistic uh, influence upon the New Testament. So this is very important. Interestingly enough, um, among the heathens, and, the, and they acknowledge this, frequently their gods were nothing other than deified mortal heroes who have now died. So um, frequently, their great heroes from antiquity, like Hercules and so on, upon their death, upon their decease, they would be deified in the minds of the people, and they would be treated as demigods. And so if you had needs of a particular kind, you would go to this one or to that one seeking those benefits from him. Generally speaking, a lot of the high gods were thought to be unapproachable. So you would, you would approach these deified mortals, because... They're more sympathetic to you, um, able to be touched with the feelings of your infirmities, and so on. The high gods are, are somewhat beyond uh, reach. In classical activity, uh, antiquity, it's rarely used. The language of demon is rarely used of evil spirit. You can probably count the number of times in all of classical literature on one hand, the number of times it's used. I mean, it's very, very rare. Um, so the Septuagint, a little bit uh, of background on this, this important uh, translation. You're talking about beginning in the 4th century B.C. Remember, uh, 333, Alexander sweeps through the region. He conquers everything. He wants everybody to speak Greek. And so most everybody does learn to speak Greek, uh, at least as a first language. The Jews, with their brethren spread throughout the world, are starting to have a problem. You're getting all of these Greek-speaking Jews that no longer understand Hebrew. So a translation is necessary for them. Uh, the Septuagint wasn't written at all, all at one time. We can only guess. Probably what happened was um, the Pentateuch was probably translated very early by one very careful man. It's generally a very good translation. The rest of it is quite uneven. And so something, probably what was happening was a rabbi stands up. He reads the Hebrew scripture to his synagogue Nobody understands what he says. And then he gives them a, an on-the-spot translation. Somebody's out there writing it down, and they begin to gather all of this 
stuff up. But once you get into the prophets and the writings, the translation becomes very uneven. Some of it very good, some of it very poor, some of it very literal, some of it very paraphrastic. But you are in 4th century Alexandria, a hub of Jewish thought, it's true, but it's like the philosophical marketplace of the Greek-speaking world. So these were scholars that knew quite a bit about Hebrew and about Greek. They've got a foot in each one of these worlds. So for them, there was a very easy concurrence between the Greek and Platonic idea of the demons as deified men uh, and these lesser heathen deities with what they knew from Hebrew antiquity of the Baalim, the lords that had become deified. Many of the Baalim did not start as, um, you know, just they, they were always thought of as God. They were their dead kings that they then deified and worshipped. And so you can see the concurrence of the Hebrews as they're looking for Greek terms to borrow for their own ancient history, why they would borrow this one for the heathen imaginary gods. So, for example, let me just, well, let's look at these. Turn with me to Psalm 106, verse 28. And I hope that this will shed light. These are not the only passages that are like this. They can seem very cryptic to us if we don't understand that ancient practice, both in the Grecian world as well as in the ancient Near East, of deifying your ancient leaders and heroes uh, upon their decease. But Psalm 106, verse 28, they joined themselves also unto Baal Peor and ate the sacrifices of the dead. That is the, the deified mortals. Some other examples. Um, uh, flip forward with, or forward with me to Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19. And when they shall say unto you, seek unto them that have familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep and that mutter, should not a people seek unto their God for the living to the dead? So here the images of you know living people, living beings going to the dead and worshiping the dead, which are also uh, characterized here as uh, familiar spirits. And just one more illustration, Isaiah 65, beginning in verse 1. Uh, if you'll flip there with me, then we'll just be back to our outline. Everybody okay? Keeping the thinking caps on? All right, Isaiah 65, beginning in verse 1. I am sought of them that asked not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. I said, Behold me, behold me, unto a nation that was not called by my name. I have spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious people which walked in a way that was not good, after their own thoughts, a people that provoked me to anger continually to my face, that sacrificeth in gardens and burneth incense upon altars of brick, which remain among the graves and lodge in the monuments 
which eat swine's flesh and broth of abominable things in their vessels. So notice where this, uh, where this worship is portrayed as taking place. It takes place in the midst of the graves and in the monuments of those that have uh, died before them. So, uh, and we're really not left in much doubt because we do know that this was practice in the ancient Near East and even of the Greco-Roman civilization. It was very much part of uh, the time. So foreign to us now, uh, but common, common in, in the day. Now we want to look at the Septuagint use of the of these these same vocabulary words. So look again at your at your outline. Uh, Deuteronomy thirty two verse seventeen. They sacrificed unto devils. Again, uh, not such a happy translation. Shade in in Hebrew means Lord. They they sacrificed to lords, as it's rendered here uh, in. The Septuagint, Demonius. Again, um, the lords that have departed, that have gone, uh, that have gone before. But notice here, he goes on to say, uh, uh, they esteem them to be gods, but they're really not gods. So they sacrifice unto lords, <coughs> not to God. So not to the to gods. Now here he calls whatever they're trying to worship Elohim. Here now, so they're not. They, remember the pagans. And even the ancient Jews were not thinking of themselves as worshiping evil spirits, although they might have, in fact, been doing that. But they're worshiping the vain and imaginary gods of the heathen. So notice here that um, daimonios is now further translated or interpreted for us as Elohim or Theos in the Greek, which is the uh, for God. So they, they uh, sacrificed to gods whom they knew not, to new gods that came newly up, whom your fathers feared not. So not to new devils, but rather to these ones who have died and have now entered into the heathen pantheon, you see. This is uh, part of the problem. Uh, but also notice here, for our purposes, I said part of the definition of this is the, uh, at least from a Christian point of view, has to be the no gods of the heathens the vain, imaginary, empty ones, because this is part of Moses' complaint here. They sacrifice to these, but they're not God. They're not real, they're not living, they're not true. And so there's nothing about this text that would compel us to depart from the common usage of demon, which is um, an imaginary heathen god. Look again with me at Psalm 96, and there's a lot more um, that could be said and a lot more passages that can be cited. I just want to give you a couple of illustrations. For all the gods, again, Elohim, just there in the construct state, but Elohim, hoi theoi, of the nations are idols. That's a different lexeme, elilim, which means vanities. These are empty things. These are nullities. They're nothings. But interestingly enough, these nothings are translated... Um, uh, by the Septuagint translators, is daimonia. So not um, not evil spirits, which really are something, but these imaginary gods, which are, are nothing. So vain, imaginary, heathen gods are, are very much in view. And I'm not sure that there's any clear instance in the Septuagint of daimonia being used in our more common sense of an evil spirit. It does appear to be talking about the vain 
gods of uh, the heathen. Now, um, in the New Testament, it is interesting that the primary definition of demon, being an imaginary god, is still retained. If you look with me at Acts chapter 17, you remember where Paul is, right? Paul's on Mars Hill. He is dealing with the philosophers on Mars Hill. Uh, Acts chapter 17, beginning at verse 18. I think that this is also in the outline. Did I get it in the outline? Okay. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, what will this babbler say? Other, other some, he seemeth to be a setter, a, a setter forth of strange gods. And it's the language of demon there. But um, the, um, the philosophers on, on Mars Hill at that time probably had next to no notion of a Satan or of evil spirits, per se. And so, and the, so they're talking about, he seems to be a setter forth of strange or foreign demons, that is, foreign gods. Because he preacheth unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And then in verse 22... Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. Now this, uh, this little adjective is uh, comparative in Greek. So you might say quite superstitious, or that's why they translated it here too. It uh, increases the intensity of it. But I want you to notice right in the, in the middle, I'll do it slow, daimon. Basically, you are, you are very much um, demon fearers. Now, he's not trying to insult them like you guys worship devils. What he's saying is, I can see that you are superstitious, religious, that you are worshipers of your gods, of the heathen gods. I can see that you're very committed to that. I could see that by walking around Athens and seeing all of uh, the monuments. Uh, one other illustration of this classical usage retained in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10, 20, and 21. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils, demons, and not to God. So the question is, are they, are they worshiping evil spirits or are they worshiping their own heathen deities? And I do think we can actually get an answer if we're left with a question there. And then he goes on using the, the same vocabulary. I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils, demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the tables of demons. And even that last expression, it even makes some more sense if, as he's expostulating with the Corinthians, he's saying you cannot be partakers of the table of the Lord and the table of Zeus. You can't mix these religions. You see, see what I'm saying? The most natural contrast here is between the Lord and his ordinances and the false gods and their ordinances, not uh, evil spirits. And as this is, same idea is expressed in 2 Corinthians 6.16, Paul simply says, what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? It's the same, same idea, but they're expressed as idols, which gives us some sense of what he means by demons in his first epistle to the Corinthians. So, um, again, Dr. Clark says this, 
The heathen could not be said to have sacrificed to devilish satanic spirits either abstractly considered or in respect of intention, saying they had not even a notion of the devil or Satan as he's presented in the Holy Scriptures. So that's not what they're doing, and that's not quite the way that the vocabulary of the New Testament is directed. So how did it go from from this usage in classical antiquity to the way that we use demon today? Because we don't use it to refer to idols or false gods, do we? Well, the New Testament changed it, and particularly the use in, in the Gospels and in Acts to clearly refer to evil spirits. Jesus is always encountering, and the usage become, is so prevalent, even though, interestingly enough, even in Greek uh, lexica, Greek dictionaries, they even still put that, that more ancient usage first as the primary usage in spite of the numerous use of it as referring to evil spirits. They still use it as secondary. And I think historically we begin to see why. Why would the New Testament writers use the old language for the false gods and apply it to these evil spirits? So when they're picking a word for evil spirits, why would they use the word that had always been used for the false gods? And it seems that they wanted to... um, represent the old heathen gods and the cults that were devised around them as being uh, satanically motivated and constructed. And so they take the old word and then they they give it to the animating principle of this whole whole business, which had always been um, the prince of the powers of the air and the spirits that were working in the sons of um, disobedience. So the real evil spirits, but notice here, real evil spirits um, behind the worship of false, vain, empty, heathen gods, which really had no existence, you see? That's one of the reasons why they worship what's not God, and that gives us some indication. What is a nullity? What is a vanity? What is an emptiness? And so on. That tells us something of the way that they're using it, and they're not using it to refer to real spirits, not even evil ones. These things are just empty. They have no reality to them. Now, one final thing to try to draw all of this together. Uh, do you have Acts 16? No, I, I'm perhaps just flip with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 16. Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 16. And it came to pass as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with the spirit of divination, a spirit puthanus, of python, quite literally in, in the Greek. We'll talk about that in just a moment. She met us and brought her master much gain by her, by her soothsaying. Okay, very important to get the substance here of who this lady was and uh, what her significance was. There's an old uh, Greek myth that Apollo, who is generally thought of as being a a benevolent deity, frequently associated with revelation and disclosure and so on, god of light. Uh, Apollo, uh, and this is, you guys have probably all heard of the Oracle of Delphi. So at at this place, it it was said that uh, Apollo killed the great serpent Python. 
And now, in, in after ages, uh, when the oracle of Delphi, Delphi would sit in that place and the, and the steam would rise up from that crevice, those vapors, people have speculated about what they were, but she would go into this ecstatic trance and she would prophesy. And this is what the spirit of Python is here. Why it's been translated a spirit of, uh, of divination, but it's a spirit of revelation. And if you'll notice the way she's being used, this is not thought of as being evil spirits or a bad thing among them. Right? This is part of one of their false gods and his cult. You might even say, a little inaccurate, but you might even say that she's possessed with the spirit of Apollo, who by the vapors of Python, you know, gave all of these revelations and so on. So this is not for them a bad thing. This is a good thing. And it's even expressed in the, the language that they would think of it in. But notice what Paul does. And I think you'll start to see the relationship between um, the old usage of demon and the new one and why the New Testament writers would choose to use demon for evil spirits. The same followed Paul and us and cried saying, these men are the servants of the most high God which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days. But Paul, being grieved, and turned and said to the spirit. Now, that's not demon, it's just spirit. But said to the spirit, notice the substance, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. And that's clearly the same action and activity that Jesus was involved in. And those spirits are always called either spirits or uh, demons. So you see the two definitions coming together. The way the heathen think about it, this is um, the spirit of Python. And then um, the way that, uh, you know, Paul uncovers the spiritual reality that there is demonic, in our sense, demonic activity animating this whole business. One final thing. We can't do all of this. We'll probably do some of this later. In the early church, they retained both of these uses and continued to speak of the uh, heathen gods as being demons. Not in the secondary sense, in the primary sense. They just continued to use that same old... Uh, vocabulary. So we need to be careful that our English usage does not prejudice our interpretation of this passage. I know how we always use demon, but that was the secondary and subordinate sense in our literature. This is part of grammatical historical exegesis. We interpret the passages according to grammar and the way they would have been understood at the time. And so we have to try to, the best we can, get back into the time and the usages of the words then. Why go through all of this? Uh, one, it's a demonstration that some things are go only going to be had by the sweat of your, your brow, and these things can be difficult and complicated. But remember, I started with the uh, objection in defense of Roman Catholicism that they're not devil worshipers. So this can't be applied to them. And that's true. They're not devil worshippers. And if that's what the text was saying, we might have some difficulty here. It's not what the text is saying. And the text couldn't more perfectly represent what was happening at the time. We'll do more with this when we get into Revelation chapters 12 and 13. But once, if you remember with the Constantinian Revolution, when all of the unbelieving pagans came streaming into the church, but were still pagans, still unconverted, they brought their paganism with them, with its ceremonies. The, the uh, Parthenon in, in Greece is just the perfect illustration. The church took that over, which was what? What was it? It's an idol temple filled with all sorts of idolatrous imagery all over it. 
The church went in there and just plastered the names of saints and angels on all of these things and continued the same old cult because that's what the pagans wanted. They wanted to be in the church, but they wanted the things that they had the same way. And what you found within the church at this point was the very thing that they had in, in paganism, which was our heroes, the martyrs, die, and then they pass into a, uh, a pantheon of deities we might go to this one for this thing and that one for that thing, but Jesus is thought to be unapproachable, right? He's not sympathetic. If you want you want to get a soft spot with Jesus, you'd go to Mary, and then Mary will go to Jesus. So we no longer have the one mediator between God and men. We have innumerable mediators between us and Christ. But you notice, formally, it's paganism. Formally, it was the same, and it was the worship of deified heroes. That was the great vexation beginning in the 4th century and not repented of until uh, the present day. And if you want this secondary usage, I don't mind it much because I do think that the scriptures have uncovered that this whole business is animated by the devil. And the scripture is going to bring that into uh, bold relief in chapters 12 and 13, we can't do all of this, but what we'll find is the dragon animating the old paganism. But when his time is up, and when it is time for him to be finished, he passes his authority over to the beast. But basically, the old paganism continues um, with a new dress. But that's the only difference. It's the same old paganism, but with a new dress, a new getup. And interestingly enough, the description of the dragon... And the description of the beast is the same. And it says that the dragon gives all of his, you know, the seven heads, the ten horns. The descriptions are actually the same. And then he hands over all of his authority to um, uh, this successor. So if somebody wants the secondary definition, I don't mind. But without omitting the first and primary definition, which makes perfect sense uh, in the context in which it was written and to the context in which it was fulfilled which was worshiping in the church of vain, false gods, deified heroes, the departed saints and, and martyrs, which brings us into perfect conformity with what we've already said in Revelation chapter 8, if you remember. Why, why is the mediator so provoked at that point in history, except that uh, his mediator uh, work is being set aside and others are being put uh, in his place? So by way of uh, use, I know that this is a lot of work and uses will be mostly for uh, coming days, but uh, we are reminded that the satanic powers are real. And um, behind the, the false religions with which the church is currently doing battle, there is certainly uh, satanic power and malice. You remember when uh, Islam was opened up uh, for our eyes, it was portrayed as, um, uh, you know, the fallen, uh, the, the star falling and opening up the bottomless pit, you know, and the great cloud that comes out of the pit to deceive men and so on. Satanic powers uh, behind all of these things. This seems very seasonable to me. We are getting ready to uh, um, launch into some new missionary endeavors and our adversary, the devil, couldn't be more opposite to what we're doing. 
He will try to incapacitate, cripple, hinder, embarrass. He will do everything that he can. And so we need to be diligent in praying that the Lord will set up the hedge of protection so that, as Paul might say, the gospel would have free course and be unhindered by his uh, machinations because um, he's wiser than we are. He's more skillful, more more experienced, more powerful. Uh, We need God to be our great protector and uh, defender. And uh, also, um, we are reminded that as we come face to face with these um, with these foreign systems, uh, there there is something behind them more than just. You might look at what they're talking about, and what they're talking about is not real. There's nothing to it. Uh, they're talking about figments and shadows. Um, the devil loves to peddle in these things, and uh, and so he is behind these things, animating. And so we re- we realize and remember. Um, uh, that uh, we are not in a struggle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, um, these spirits of darkness, and we must be prepared to engage them spiritually by relying upon our God in prayer. Interestingly enough, our, our next psalm is Psalm 127. Psalm 127 to the tune St. Anne. And we are reminded that if we are going to have success in any endeavor, the Lord must give it. You think about our, our first service, grace is a miracle. It's not passed on by nature or by human efforts. Think about our second, our enemy is, is too much for us. We can't withstand him. We need God's protection. We need the one that is stronger than the strong man to bind him and to limit his uh, activities. And so we sing, except the Lord do build the house, the builders lose their pain. Except the Lord the city keep, the watchmen watch in vain. Please rise. <clears throat>